interfere with the function of the thyroid gland. And they're named that way because they've been associated with a goiter, which is the enlargement of the thyroid gland. So swelling of the thyroid and you can see it along the column of the throat. So what are some of the well-known goitrogenic substances? Um, one is theocyanate. It's found in your cruciferous vegetables. So again, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, kale, uh, cabbage. Isotheocyanates, which is also found in cruciferous vegetables. And this is actually the, the compound that we think does the most to inhibit iodine uptake. Welcome to the Menopause Mastery Podcast, a show for women just like you who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, living life with a purpose. I created this show because I knew that women just like me in this second season of life, the season of menopause, are really tapping into their deepest desires. And we're ready to harness our physical and mental health and explore what our true passions are and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what we want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking the complex science and making it easier to integrate into daily life. So let's join the journey to make this season the best ever. Welcome back to Menopause Mastery. So today I'm going to talk by myself and we are going to talk all about some food compounds that have, I would say, mixed reviews online. And I think it brings a lot of confusion to my clients and my listeners. And so I want to see if I can shed some light on some of the compounds in foods that we've either been told that they are dangerous or that they're helpful and leads to a lot of confusion. So today we're going to talk about goitrogens, we're also going to talk about phytic acid, and we're also going to talk about lectins. And what does the research really say? So let's get started. All right, so the first one I'm going to talk about today is the idea around goitrogens. So goitrogens are compounds that are founded, found, founded, found in various vegetables in particular, like broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, kale. It's, it's also... Uh, Goitrogens are also found um, in foods like strawberries, peaches, and millet. Um, so what are goitrogens? So the idea is goitrogens are substances that interfere with the function of the thyroid gland. And they're named that way because they've been associated with a goiter, which is the enlargement of the thyroid gland. So swelling of the thyroid and you can see it along the column of the throat. So what are some of the well-known goitrogenic substances? One is theocyanate. It's found in your cruciferous vegetables. So again, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, kale, cabbage isotheocyanates, which is also found in cruciferous vegetables. And this is actually the, the compound that we think does the most to inhibit iodine uptake. And then flavonoids. So flavonoids are considered also a potential goitrogen, again, found in strawberries, peaches, millet, lots of foods. And they've been found in petri dishes to have a goitrogenic effect. And then theoglyos, theoglyo, can't talk today theoglycosides, which are compounds found in cruciferous vegetables that have also been found to possibly inhibit iodine activity. So what's really happening here? So when we're trying to understand the function of goitrogens, iodine is a particularly important nutrient to the thyroid. And so what we have found is some goitrogens, particularly those found in cruciferous vegetables, can inhibit the uptake of iodine by the thyroid gland 
by interfering with the enzyme that adds iodine to what they call a tyrosine residue, which basically is used to make both T4 and T3, thyroxine and triodiothionine, right? So those two hormones, T4 and T3, which are very important, iodine is essential for the production of these hormones. And so impeding this action could be a reduction, could lead to a reduction in the production of these hormones. Obviously, if you're consuming large amounts of goitrogen, the levels of thyroid hormone that is decreased is going to increase thyroid stimulating hormone, which is the pituitary hormone that tells the thyroid to make thyroid hormones. And so this can lead to a enlarged thyroid goiter, and then also the diagnosis of hypothyroidism in classical diagnostic terms, which is a high TSH. And this enlargement of the thyroid is really an adaptive response that increases the thyroid's ability to absorb iodine, right? And potential hypothyroidism is the long-term link, right? So if the thyroid production is severely impaired, we're going to see, and particularly prolonged, we're going to see a decrease in overall thyroid hormone production, hypothyroidism as a result, and then you see all the subsequent symptoms of that, weight gain, fatigue, cold intolerance, constipation, dry skin, all of those things. So online, you'll often see individuals, influencers, and even professionals in the healthcare community saying foods that contain these goitrogens, including all the, you know, things you've often heard that you on the other side of the equation have been told that were healthy, cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, and even and soy as well. Soy is another goitrogen that these foods should not be consumed because they are toxic to the thyroid. So, so let's get into what is really occurring here. So in the research. Yes, large consumptions, particularly of cabbage, cabbage has probably the most research, showing that if we're eating very large amounts of that food, that, and especially in an iodine deficiency state, so that is the key thing. We need iodine for the production of the hormones T4 and T3, and the difference between T4 and T3 is literally the difference of one removed iodine molecule. And so we do need iodine. So in somebody who's eating a prolonged amount of these foods and a large amount of these foods, with an iodine deficiency, could it lead to goitrogen and could it lead to suppression of thyroid function? Absolutely. However, what you know, what are these compounds when we look at them and their entire properties? Because the thing about being a good researcher is number one, good researchers look to disprove their own hypothesis. So what that means is if I believe something to be true or I have a pretty strong inclination, my job as a researcher is look for evidence of the contrary. And then if I can't find strong enough evidence to the contrary, that now removes a large percentage of the potential for it to be up to chance, meaning that my hypothesis may be true. The problem is, is most people, A, have not gone through, you know, too many semesters of research classes, and we often fall, fall into being in an echo chamber where we we cherry pick our content and cherry pick what we read, and then therefore don't have clear understanding of what we really see. So what are some of these ingredients and how do they affect other parts of the body, particularly the liver and detoxification? So a lot of the ingredients that we're talking about in these foods is a is a compound called endoglucosinolates, which are a subgroup of these glucosinolates that are found obviously in your cruciferous vegetables that are sulfur-containing compounds that can be broke down into various bioactive compounds called indols by an enzyme called myrosinase. And so this this happens in the digestive process and we actually have bacteria in our gut that help us do this as well. So the goitrogen compounds are found in these foods and these glucosinolates are 
actually compounds in these foods that have found to be favorable in liver and detoxification processes. So the goitrogens like the theocyanates and isothiocyanates may be hampering the thyroid, but these glucosinolates can actually improve liver detoxification by helping the sulfur compound process. So let's talk about this. So the liver detoxes through a phase one and phase two, which is basically the first phase is to take mostly a fat-soluble compound and then convert it to a water-soluble compound, which is then becomes an interactive intermediate. And so what that means is, is with the addition of nutrients like your B vitamins, your amino acids, all our nutrition, 75% of it actually goes to the detoxification process. So all of these nutrients help us take that toxic ingredient, whatever it may be, and move it to a water-soluble ingredient. And what's interesting is if we look at the indoles, specifically indole-3-carbonyl and its derivative, diindolmethane, they can stimulate the production of these enzymes that help you detoxify these harmful chemicals. So, So compounds that are also found in these foods actually amplify the detoxification process in the liver and helps the body move through phase one to phase two. Um, The other thing that these compounds do is they exhibit antioxidant properties, which helps neutralize harmful free radicals in the body and supports the overall detoxification process. And you know I'm all about hormone metabolism, specifically indole-3-carbonyl and its byproduct diindolmethane, or otherwise known as DIM, influences specifically the way the body metabolizes estrogen and they promote a healthier balance of healthier clean estrogens, which has implications in diseases, particularly estrogen sensitive cancers, right? So so the same foods has compounds in it, even sephorophane. So let's play this out for you a little bit. The same foods have compounds in it, the indoles and the sephorophanes that actually help our body detox, but also contain the other compounds, the goitrogens, that can slow thyroid function. So this is the conundrum, and this is why people are confused, because on one side, the carnivores are saying these foods are going to destroy your body, and on the other side, we have the hardcore plant-based diet that's that's also pushing, you know, potentially too much of these foods. All right, so the overall impact of these nutrients can't be overlooked, because again, if we look at some of the research, it shows that they may provide protection against diseases like liver health. So what about these intermediate compounds? Because this is going to be the next argument is, you know, do these intermediate compounds that that the liver produces in phase one, do they lead to detoxification impacts that could affect the step from phase one to phase two? So to put this in very easy to understand terms, liver detoxification, think of it as a process in which your body is adding wrappers around the toxin. So instead of like taking a chair and breaking the legs off of it so you can throw it in the trash, i.e. detoxing it, the way the body really does this is it actually takes different nutrient wrappers around the toxin that change the the compound into number one phase one more water soluble and an intermediate and then phase two it wraps it in its what they call conjugated amino acid pathway like glucuronidation or sulfation and then that wrapper then passes it to the next step so indole 3 carbonyl right 
So indole-3-carbonyl enhances phase one and phase two detoxification. So it helps the production of enzymes that help you get rid of toxins. DIM specifically, which is a breakdown product that's made in the stomach through stomach acids activity on indole-3-carbonyl, it actually promotes the detoxification specifically of estrogenic compounds, which includes things like pesticides, herbicides, our own hormones. And, and again, it's got implication in being positive in hormone-sensitive cancer. And then indole methyl isothiocyanates that's made from indole glucosin and glucosinolates they actually are known for their ability to induce phase two detoxification enzymes. So one of the challenges that we find in detoxification is we want the speed of phase one and phase two to be equivalent. So what the way to think about it is I don't want to drag all of my toxins out of my closet and then get them into the garage if my garage is full. So I want to make sure that phase two, which would be opening the garage door and then dragging them out into the driveway is, is appropriately working or otherwise you get things stuck in that intermediate pathway. All right. So, so while these compounds derived from, from indoles and from these foods that are considered bad, it's all about how much, right? So when we, we look at these foods, if you're eating them in natural form, Okay, so if you're eating these in natural form, how a normal human would eat them, you wouldn't be eating six cups of broccoli a day. You wouldn't be juicing kale, entire bunches of kale. You would be eating them and they would be part of an intermix of a seasonal consumption of these foods. So at the end of the day, it's really important we have to understand these foods have a dose dependency and a nutrient dependency. And in somebody with adequate, not too much, not too little iodine levels, they're actually going to have just fine function with consumption of these foods. I want to go back to sephorophane because especially in the thyroid world, there has been studies looking at consumption, particularly of sephorophane in very high levels, looking at thyroid function specifically of the thyroid hormone. So in this study, they, they gave very high dose of sephorophane, which is in a compound found in broccoli and broccoli sprouts, right? So broccoli sprouts, we don't eat that much. We eat broccoli, the heads of broccoli, but broccoli sprouts have the highest concentration, sephorophane, which is an isothiocyanate. And sephorophane helps detoxification, induces phase two, like I said. Well, they gave very high levels of sephorophane to humans for 12 weeks, 12 weeks. And then they tested before and after the, the level of thyroid hormones, and they found no effect on thyroid hormone levels. So these individual compounds are definitely not problematic for thyroid. And again, in somebody that has appropriate iodine, then these foods are not going to be dangerous. And the compounds like indole-3-carbonyl and DIM and sephorophane are anti-inflammatory, detox-supporting, and an antioxidant. So it's more about the dose right? It's much more about the dose. So if you think you may be iodine deficient, you don't want to just rush out and take iodine because iodine is all about sufficiency and adequate, not too much, not too little. Too much and too little can cause thyroiditis, right? Too much and too little can cause problems. And there is a a significant portion of people that are probably dealing with hypothyroidism, specifically Hashimoto's, that may be over-consuming iodine because the research, and again, this stuff gets cherry-picked, the research shows those individuals in countries where there's a significant amount of natural iodine consumption because of the consumption of seaweed and things like shrimp and other crustaceans has shown that, that really high concentrations of iodine can induce thyroiditis. So you need to have a qualified functional medicine practitioner 
practitioner, a functional nutritionist to help you understand that. And you need to test your urine iodine levels. A blood test is inadequate to identify this. And taking super, super physiological dose uh, amounts is, is not going to help. All right. So my argument on the goitrogens is number one, it's about the dose. Number two, so we're not eating truckloads, we're eating adequate amount. Heat breakdown. Goitrogen compounds are sensitive to heat and they break down during cooking. This reduces their ability to interfere with thyroid function. So specifically boiling, steaming, or cooking vegetables reduces that effect. And if you're somebody that likes them raw, what you can do is heat a big pan of of water, drop them in for a few minutes, one to two minutes, they get bright green, take them out and run cold water over them, and that you'll still get some of the benefits that would be seen with cooking. And the reason is, is cooking actually denatures some of the chemical structure of these goitrogens, rendering them less effective at interfering with thyroid right? And if you boil or steam, some of the goitrogens are going to leach into the water and then be thrown out. The other thing is cooking helps these foods become more digestible because it breaks down the cell walls of these plants and makes them easier to digest. So that's the take home. So so again, it's about how much and really it's only concerning in somebody who's iodine deficient. All right, so let's move on to phytic acid. So phytic acid is inositol hexakisophosphate or IP6. And it is an unique compound found in seeds, right? It's found in reproductive organs, specifically of plants. And what is the argument against phytic acid? So phytic acid is nutrient binding. It has a strong affinity for binding to important minerals such as calcium, magnesium, iron, and zinc. And when bound, they become less available for absorption and utilization. So we can't get them out of the foods. So if we're binding to a bunch of our bioavailable nutrients, through excessive intake of phytic acid may decrease the amount of these minerals in the body. Um, So phytic acid has been found in all kinds of foods, but the primary foods that you see are gonna be grains, so rice, oats, wheat, barley, your quinoa, your millet, they all have phytic acid in it. Legumes, including beans, lentils, your um, chickpeas, nuts and seeds, so all your healthy nuts and seeds, sunflower seeds and other things, and especially in tubers too. So it's much in sm- much smaller amounts, but tubers like sweet potatoes, potatoes, there's going to have a, an amount of phytic acid in them, right? So phytic acid is a way for an animal or a way for a plant to avoid being consumed by an animal okay so what does that mean plants can't run from you as a pest and we are a pest to a plant because we eat them and so if I am eating too much of these foods obviously that food can't survive and can't reproduce and continue on the planet and so phytic acid also exists in these plant species, the reproductive organ of plants, to allow for sort of natural pest control so that plant can reproduce and continue on because that's what nature cares about, right? So what is what does the research really say? So it depends on what you're looking at. So if we look at in vitro studies, which are in a Petri dish, it has an effect on cells. So phytic acid actually has shown to be a little bit of an antioxidant and have some potential anti-cancer effects. And then a lot of the studies have been done on rats and mice and looked at specifically mineral absorption and bone health, kidney function, and especially, again, on the other side, does it have some positive effect, particularly on cancer? And when we look at human studies, they've been mostly observational. And again, they're looking at the impact on mineral absorption, specifically like calcium, iron, and zinc are probably the ones that that most have looked at. So it has been studied extensively. And in general, what we find, it has negative side effects 
effects on mineral absorption, but they are not typically problematic under adequate, not excessive intake, right? And again, phytic acid may have an anti-cancer effect. And if we look at a healthy diet a or omnivore diet, we're not going to be eating extraordinary amounts of these foods. And when we are eating foods like this, we're going to have a situation where, guess what? How we prepare them changes the level of phytic acid. So where do we see it become a problem, especially in the plant food movement? Believe me, I am a I am a omnivore. I believe in an omnivore diet, and I am very plant-centric, meaning that plants play a significant role in the diet. But I'm also a carnivore, and I respect vegetarians and vegans who don't want to eat animal product, but we were designed to eat both right? We, we were animals that, that slowly transitioned over time from something ape-like to human, but a lot of that transition came from eating different foods and expanding the diet of great apes to account for our ability to continue and proliferate across the planet. That's why we don't have numbers like great apes is because we are omnivores and able to really consume a lot of different foods. So when we eat these foods in excess, right? If we're vegan and this is a huge part of our diet and particularly vegan raw, where we might be getting 90% of our protein just from nuts alone, unless they are being sprouted and soaked and other things, we may end up with a mineral deficiency, specifically calcium, iron, and zinc, and magnesium. Iron is probably the most common because a vegetarian diet does not contain very, very much bioavailable iron. And so even though a food like spinach may have iron in it, it's not very well mobilized and utilized by the human body. And anemia is real as a concern particularly in vegans, because iron is not well absorbed and not represented well in the vegan diet. And then B12, which is another form of iron, not iron anemia, but anemia. And a lack of B12 will also cause anemia, which leads to fatigue and a weakened immune system. And obviously, if you have calcium or zinc deficiency, we've got calcium is going to affect bone health. And then zinc is going to affect impaired immunity, hormone production, delayed wound healing, even loss of taste and smell. Particularly smell is probably the most common. And very large amounts of these foods have been known to cause gastrointestinal discomfort. And it's probably also because these foods are also high in fiber. So if you someone's switching from a low fiber diet to a higher fiber diet, they're going to have a lot more symptoms as those foods get fermented. So a phytic acid, yes, it keeps minerals bound. But in somebody with adequate mineral intake, which I recommend that you get adequate mineral intake by either taking a multi-mineral or a multivitamin with a nice combination of minerals, because the minerals in our soil are depleted, right? So you probably a little deficient anyway. We're not going to have a huge problem with phytic acid binding to the minerals that naturally occur in some of those foods. And much like the goitrogenic foods, if I soak, sprout, ferment, cook, I'm going to reduce the impact of phytic acid. And even vitamin C can help improve the absorption of iron from your vegetarian forms. So often we add vitamin C in somebody who's vegetarian or vegan to try and improve that absorption of iron from those foods. Because again, I respect people's desire to not kill animals. Believe me, struggle with it every day. But I also know that I felt really bad trying a vegan diet and it was definitely not for me and I could not do it. All right. So the take-home message, gorgogens and phytic acid in foods are ameliorated to some extent by eating appropriate amounts, not excessive amounts, and by the cooking and preparation methods like soaking and fermenting. And you can actually improve that quite a bit. So that brings me to lectins. So lectins are a type of protein found in a wide variety of organisms, including plants. 
And they can bind to carbohydrates, and this binding ability plays a role in lots of things. And again, this is something that the plant produces to protect themselves against pests like insects, fungi, humans, <laughs> other animals. Because again, lectins are going to be found in high levels on the reproductive organs of plants, right? So a lot of the lectins that we hear about are found in the plant itself. So things like peppers, your even spinach has high lectin content. And so what is it that we've seen? So some of the research suggests that lectins may stimulate immune responses, which could be both negative and positive. So you have to look at the research and I'm going to go through it. Potential applications have been that it's negative and we have too much of that and that could be stimulating an autoimmunity. And then there's actually some some studies in cancer therapy that may have medical application of just specific lectins, right? So here's then what's listed as the negative side effects. So particularly in animal studies, this was pretty pretty well researched in mice and rats, is dietary lectins are resistant to digestion and so they can interact with the gut lining. And in certain circumstances, obviously that could lead to leaky gut or intestinal permeability is the technical term. And if somebody tells you that doesn't exist, they need to look up intestinal permeability and just start through the 35 to 40,000 references that are found in PubMed. And when we have leaky gut, gut bacteria and other things can go out of the intestines and into the bloodstream and stimulate the immune system. There is speculation and there is some research sort of looking at that lectins may contribute to autoimmune diseases and the theory is that the binding of lectins to cell surfaces may trigger some of these immune responses and and then we produce antibodies and they mis mistakenly target the body's own tissues through a mechanism called molecular mimicry. So, and again, we have some studies. There was a human study looking at lectin removal in autoimmune people. Now, it was a very small study and it needs to be repeated in larger studies, seeing improvement in overall symptomology when high lectin foods were removed for a period of time. So, in an autoimmune person, this may mean more and it needs to be explored, especially if not getting somewhere, it may definitely need to be explored. Lectins can also bind to minerals as well, so they can potentially interfere with absorption and they can cause inflammation. So, when we look at animal studies, there was chronic inflammation in the intestinal lining in rats and mice that were fed very large amounts of lectins. And so that inflammation effect affected absorption. And then toxicity, right? So particularly cooked kidney beans that have been uncooked or cooked improperly have shown to be toxic and can cause gastrointestinal issues, which is why you can't eat kidney beans raw. So where do we find these? They're going to be in your reproductive organs, beans, lentils, grains, nuts, seeds, nightshade vegetables such as tomatoes and potatoes and peppers. And then we also see them even in some of your fruits and things too, but at much lower levels because those are all, again, reproductive organs and lectins are a way for those plants to defend themselves so that seed can drop on the ground, germinate, and grow another plant. So much like phytic acid and, and the goitrogens, proper cooking, soaking, fermentations can help reduce the lectin levels in these foods. And again, if we're not eating truckloads of these foods, i.e. like juicing spinach or eating really large amounts of nuts and seeds, we may not be getting as much of these as, as people think. Right, and there are there are labs that offer lectin testing. We use them all the time. That is part of our process with our, our clients and patients. Is we explore whether lectins are problematic. And I'm not going to say that we test every single person because it's not necessary for every single person to do that. So, what's the real take home message on these foods? Right. So the take home message is that 
When we're eating a healthy, balanced diet, and so what does that mean? So I'm going to put this in really simple terms. And this is in a healthy person who maybe isn't going through massive IBS or digestive problems with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Uh, But let's say a healthy person that just wants to improve their overall health. If you look down at your plate, I want you to cut the plate in half. And one half of that plate should be vegetables that are grown above ground right? So not your potatoes, not your sweet potatoes, but your above ground vegetables, which includes all the cruciferous vegetables, your leafies, your peppers, your tomatoes, all those things. If one half of my plate consists of those either cooked or raw, but again, if they have high amounts of these foods, I might want to blanch them or at least cook them. What I'm getting is an extraordinary amount of nutrients that affect my detoxification pathway that help me get toxins out of the body that also have an antioxidant effect and and also have, in many cases, um, anti-carcinogenic effects, right? So they favorably address the body. And if I eat seasonally and I eat foods in their season, I can't really, honestly, in a real world where we didn't have a global food supply, you wouldn't be able to get broccoli every damn day. So don't eat it every day. What you want to do is eat a wide variety of foods and switch it around. So A, have seasonal foods. And so one half of that plate consists of those foods. And yes, if it's in the morning, you can have some berries or things like that, but I wouldn't eat extraordinary amounts of fruit either because you could overeat some fructose in that process. At least there's fiber in the fruit, all right? But but think of it that way. Half of the plate is going to be some vegetable foods. Then cut the other half of the plate in a quarter. One quarter of that side should be your animal proteins or a good protein source. Now, again, if you're vegetarian or vegan and you're specifically vegan, avoiding all, all animal-based foods and even things like eggs, and dairy, then you're going to get a lot more of these foods in your diet in order to get protein, right? So that's where we can run into kind of an excessive amount of these foods. But in an omnivore, that animal protein on the other side, which is going to be about four to five ounces, is going to be the protein that you need that's essential to the body, right? And then the other quarter of the plate could be something starchy, right? So it could be a sweet potato, which is about a half a cup. We're not talking three cups of rice here, people. We're talking a half a cup. It's going to be equivalent in size to your protein. Or it could be, it could be some black beans. It could be some of these lectin foods. It could be some whole grain like quinoa. I'm obviously gluten-free. I prefer things like that, but I am not a hundred percent grain-free. So at the end of the day, It's all about the proportion of these foods that you eat and the appropriate preparation method. And if you have thyroid disorders or you have autoimmunity or you have one of these conditions that we need to look at and maybe dive a little deeper, you need to find a highly qualified functional medicine practitioner that understands this and actually figure out what your degree of dose should be on these foods. Because again, taking them all out of the diet deprives our body of other compounds that may help us clean up toxins and other things. All right, so I hope we kind of cleared the air on some of those foods and now you understand whether they're dangerous or helpful. All right, so thank you for listening to Menopause Mastery. I will see you back next week. And if you loved this episode, share it with a friend, leave me a review. And I do this because I love you guys and I just love sharing knowledge. Have a wonderful and happy and healthy week. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Menopause Mastery Podcast. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode has helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. 
You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD, and you can reach me online at bettymurray.com. 